Hi everyone, welcome to the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Zach Winnett from Hammersmith Hospital in London. Zach is an expert on electrophysiology and pacing and has particular interest in his bundle pacing. And we talk about that technique, uh, the pros and cons, and why it's become such a hot topic in the world of electrophysiology and pacing. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So, Zach, could we start off by you telling the Heart audience what it is you do and where you work? Um, hi, hi, James. Yes, um, and my name's Zach Gwinnett, and I am a cardiac electrophysiologist, and I'm based at the Hammersmith Hospital, and I work at Imperial College London as well. So I specialise in looking after people with um, who have problems, electrical problems of their heart. So I do ablation procedures for arrhythmias, and I've got a specialist interest in pacemakers and ICDs. And Zach, I know you're also interested in his bundle pacing, which is a relatively new term to me. Can you tell me a little bit about what his bundle pacing is? Um, yeah, so his bundle pacing is um, essentially uh, a, a technique for pacing where we position the the pacing lead on the his Bikinji system, so on the his bundle itself, so that when we pace pace the heart, the heart um, is activated via the heart's natural conduction system. Um, and the advantage of that is that the, the heart activates in the normal physiological way, um, rather than with conventional pacing. When we pace the um, for, for bradycardia pacing, we pay, traditionally position a lead on the in the right in the right ventricle on the muscle, and then um, we um, can prevent the heart from going too slowly. But of course, um, it's a non-physiological activation, so it's slow cell-to-cell activation from the right ventricle to the left ventricle. And we typically see a very broad QRS, and that's um, what we're used to seeing, but it's it's not the, the normal way the heart activates. And we know from observational studies that people with RV pacing leads for bradycardia, if we talk about that first, can have yeah. adverse effects because of that non-physiological depolarization. Is that right? Yeah, that's quite right. So th- this term of right ventricular pacing-induced cardiomyopathy is something that's um, increasingly being recognized. Um, so uh, we, we know if we, for example, if we know if we pace somebody who has left ventricular impairment, then uh, the chances of um, worsening the heart function are, are relatively high. Um, but even people who, um, when you implant the pacemaker, initially have no- normal heart function, um, they can then go on to develop um, impaired pump function, which seems to relate to this um, to the right ventricular pacing and the non-physiological pacing. So the incidence of that is depends um, a little bit on what definition you use, but, um, but it's at least 10 to 20% of patients and potentially um, even higher than that. Hence the drive, I suppose, to a more physiological type of pacing. Yeah, precisely. So there's two sort of real indications really for, for thinking about um, physiological pacing. And um, when we talk about bradycardia pacing, then the, the key thing is to try and prevent uh, worsening of, of the um, heart function and so pre- preventing um, people from developing this pacing-induced cardiomyopathy. So, um, so that, yeah, that's the driver there. And then, of, co- and then, um, of course, with patients who ha- already have pre-existing um, ventricular impairments um, and who would traditionally get a biventricular pacemaker, um, there's now work... Um, looking at um, conduction system pacing or hispandal pacing in these in, in these people because um, we can often correct left bundle branch block um, in, in people who have um, 
who would normally get a biventricular pacemaker. Um, but of course, with biventricular pacing, the uh, whilst we're improving the overall time it takes for the ventricles to activate, um, it's still non-physiological. We're still pacing the, the heart muscle. Um, and what we can do in uh, a certain percentage of people with um, who have left bundle branch block is you, with conduction system pacing or his bundle pacing, we can pace and correct, completely correct that left bundle um, branch block. So re re-recruit the uh, the conduction fibers and then completely normalize the way the, the ventricles activate. Can we talk a little bit about how the how the procedure's done, Zach, in terms of whereabouts in the in the his bundle uh, you tend to intervene, whether it's above the tricuspid valve or below, and, and how that works compared to a, a traditional, let's say, an RV Brady pacer. What's the sort of cost and, and time and learning curve for this uh, procedure? Um, yeah, so starting with where, where we position it. Um, so the um, obviously the, the his bundle, uh, essentially um, the course crosses from the above the tricuspid valve to the... Um, to the ventricular side. And um, where we target it uh, depends a little bit on the underlying conduction problem we're treating. So if somebody has um, a more distal block, then we would like to the lead obviously to be more distal to the uh, to the, to the level of block um, on the hispanol. So we may often in those um, patients would be pacing on the ventricular side. Um, there is a theoretical advantage to not crossing the valve, the tricuspid valve, because we know there can be lead interactions and can cause a tricuspid regurgitation. So it's attractive <clears throat> to think we, if, we, if we can pace more proximally, but obviously it's key to be more distal to the uh, to level of block. So if, someone, if we're pacing because somebody has AB block, we need to pace uh, so we're distal to that block. So we'll often end up pacing on the ventricular side in, the, in that case. Um, in terms of learning curve um, the, and, and, and tools, that, that there are now dedicated tools for delivering the lead to the uh, to the HIS bundle, um, but still relatively few tools. Um, so I'm sure there's going to be lots more coming um, with time. There's definitely a learning curve. Um, so um, we recently published a paper of a, um, a series of 500 patients um, from a number of centers where um, people were just beginning to learn his, his pacing. And we found that um, laroscopy time and actually even the capture thresholds um, reduced significantly um, after having had um, uh, 30 or 40 um, implants. So there's definitely a, a learning curve uh, with, with, with the implant, as you'd expect for any sort of new techniques, like when um, biventricular pacing came, there was clearly a learning curve for that as well. And in terms of actually doing the procedure, you need to do some electrical mapping of the heart, is that right? Um, yeah, so the, the the main differences really are that um, we we need to be able to see the signal from the lead. So we'll have a, uh, we connect the lead um, to a so that we can see the signal on the screens when we're when we're doing the uh, implant because we want to see the hiss um, signals. There's a particular signal that we'll be looking out for to see, um, and also we like to have a 12 lead ECG um, during the procedure. So we're not just assessing whether we capture or don't capture the ventricles there are different types of pacing responses that we can uh, we, we can look for so we may have we may selectively capture the his bundle where we only capture the the, the his bundle or we may get non-selective capture where we have 
both local myocardial capture as well as um, uh, conduction system capture. Um, so there's a little bit of extra information um, that we want during during the procedure, but they're not complicated signals to to to, um, to be able to interpret in terms of uh, it's very uh, relatively straightforward to be able to spot whether it's a hiss signal or not. And you mentioned at the beginning there about uh, using this or moving this technology into patients with impaired ventricular mm. function who traditionally would have got bivents or would get bivents right now. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe some of the ongoing trials or data that show that it might be useful there? I mean, biventricular pacing is, is, cl- is clearly um, a, a very effective treatment for patients who have heart failure and left bundle branch block. Um, but we, but there's, we're, we're not um, completely correcting the underlying uh, ventricular um, dyssynchrony. Uh, so we don't deliver, we don't completely normalize the uh, ventricular activation times, and we've published uh data on that and and normally with a biventricular pacemaker you, you won't get a really narrow qrs relatively modest reductions so the question is whether we can um deliver more effective ventricular resynchronization and whether that um improves outcomes so so far there's data to say that um from observational studies to say that um, we can um often and significantly shorten QRS um, with um, his resynchronization therapy. And in observational studies, that leads to improvements in symptoms and echo measurements. And um, we recently published a, um, a paper in Jack where we did a within patient comparison of um, his resynchronization therapy versus um, biventricular pacing. And we looked at ventricular activation times and found that. Um, his um, resynchronization significantly improved um, uh, uh, activation times compared to biventricular pacing, and that this translated into significantly greater improvements in acute hemodynamic function. So it's promising, um, but obviously the next step really is to test this in, um, in larger randomized trials. But one of the one of the barriers there is that it's not possible to correct the left bundle branch block in every patient with hysterosynchronization therapy because um, in some patients, the, the, the problem is in the more distal conduction system or there's, um, it's more in, interest, um, it's within sort of myocardial disease itself. So the, the, the conduction system may still be intact, in which case we're not, we're not gonna shorten activation time. So we need to try and improve the way we select uh, patients for for, for these trials. And again, there's, we've got ongoing work in that area and so have others just to improve our sort of selection um, of, of patients. And then I think um, we, we need to test it in a randomized trial thereafter. Can you talk a little bit about the HOPE-HF trial that I know you've been involved with? Yeah, so the HOPE-HF trial um, uh, is uh, also targeted at patients who have heart failure. But we're actually looking to um, to see, so these patients would not traditionally get biventricular pacing because they're patients who have a long PR interval um, and don't have left bundle branch block. So either a narrow QRS or a right bundle branch block. And we know that a long PR interval um, is a disadvantage um, and um, it's it's not a benign problem. So if you have a prolonged PR, PR interval, there's a, you have an increased risk of having cardiac events um, and it's quite non, non-physiological as well, like left bundle branch blocks, non-physiological. So um, <clears throat> shortening the um, AV activation time. So we, we've shown that you can um, improve acute cardiac function by, by doing that. 
Um, but of course, to shortening the AV delay, we don't want to induce ventricular dyssynchrony. So that's why we wouldn't want to use RV pacing um, to shorten AV delay. Um, uh, and biventricular pacing in a patient who has narrow QRS actually results in a slightly prolonged ventricular activation as well. So actually, this is where, where his um, bundle pacing um, is really a perfect solution because you don't induce ventricular dyssynchrony, but you can shorten the prolonged AV delay. Um, and so we've got acute um, studies showing that there's improvements. And now the HOPE HF trial, which is um, sponsored by the um, British Heart Foundation, and is a multi-center UK study. Um, we've recruited um, just under 200 patients, <clears throat> and um, the, uh, they all got a, um, a, a HIS uh, device, either with an ICD lead or not an ICD lead, depending on the indication. And um, they had six months of treatment on, six months treatment off, and uh, the main outcome is um, MVO2, so measuring um, exercise capacity. And so we've completed recruitment and now we're in the, um, the follow-up phase of, of the study. So what would be interesting about this study is that it's a, a, a new indication potentially um, for pacing therapy for heart failure. Fantastic. And I guess that study is going to report in what, within a year or two? Within this year, this year, later okay. this year, we'll, we'll have the, the, the results. Yeah. Brilliant. And uh, roughly how many centres are there in the, in the UK or beyond, if you know the numbers, that are doing routine his bundle pacing is this a very rarefied procedure that hardly anybody's doing or is it something that's really catching on um i mean there's as huge the last two years there's been a huge amount of interest um so beforehand there was a relatively few centers around the world um doing this and really within the last two years now every um major ep meeting um, that the his bundle sessions are, are massively well attended so the numbers of centers in, is is increasing dramatically over the last year so i couldn't tell you now the number mm. worldwide because it's it's increased so much right um in the uk we had a bit of a head start because of the hope hf trial so we had a number of centers that uh, that took part in that um but it's still not the first line therapy um and nor should it necessarily be that everybody needs to be able to do his bundle pacing? I think we still need um, further trials before we change practice completely. Um, so even in the bradycardia uh, population, we've got some evidence that it reduces the risk of developing um, uh, LB impairments. But there are certain potential disadvantages to um, to his bundle pacing capture thresholds a little bit higher often and. Um, so um, so I do think it's important for us to do randomized controlled trials um, to assess whether the advantages um, outweigh the, um, the, the potential slight disadvantages. So um, uh, as I say, it's, it's picking up lots of people uh, are, are interested and, and trying out the technique now, but um, it's still not, the, um, uh, not that widely um, paced. Um, but not that widely um, practiced compared to um, overall pacing numbers. Okay, well, we uh, await the results of Hope HF mm. and I'm sure other trials going on in this area. It sounds very exciting. As a non-EP doctor, it does mm -hmm. sound uh, cool to have a new uh, technique to learn and particularly uh, because it seems to be helping patients, but I guess we will see in the end. Yes, yeah, thank you. Yeah, exactly. So we will see. I mean, it makes physiological sense um but with these things we always need to uh to make sure we do the trials to to prove that what we think um is is right actually turns out to be to translate into into clinical benefits 
yeah, we've heard all these stories before, renal denervation and other techniques, which sound great, yeah. but uh, didn't pan out. But thank you very much indeed, Zach, uh, for your time today. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.